welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders Podcast, episode number eight. My name's Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders at Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. We're very glad that you're here with us and have some very exciting content to share with you today. Before we get going, I just want to thank everybody who's been listening in and engaging. Podcasting is still a new format for us, and your feedback is essential in guiding the evolution of the show. If you have any thoughts, opinions, or ideas, we'd love to hear from you and can be reached via email at defenders at limacharlie.io. For those tuning in for the first time, the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast is somewhat of a variety show, with each episode being made up of different segments. These segments will cover everything from cybersecurity news to analyzing techniques employed by adversaries. We will also be interviewing cybersecurity experts and try to have some fun while exploring hacker history. On today's show, Dr. Gerald Ozier from Simply Cyber is going to be taking us through the last couple of weeks in cybersecurity news, and then we will be speaking with Daniel Velasquez, a former CIA targeter turned tech entrepreneur. He's a really interesting person who's done a lot of crazy stuff, and he's not shy when it comes to talking about it. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm Jerry, and this is the Simply Cyber Report, powered by Lima Charlie, the top cyber news stories you need to know about right now. As we get closer to saying goodbye to 2022, cue the retrospective lists looking back at the year in review. Cybersecurity is no different, and our first list is a classic. NordPass has released the top 200 most commonly used passwords in 2022. This password list is based on over 3 terabytes of data across 30 different countries and multiple industry verticals. The top 10 offenders will come as no surprise as they are a who's who of terrible passwords led by the lowercase password with nearly 5 million instances and 123456, a distant second at 1.5 million instances. People love lists, they just do. In addition to being interesting to us as InfoSec professionals, consider sharing this list with your end users and remind them that any password on this list is easy to guess and can grant threat actors access into their personal accounts. Move over, Cobalt Strike, there's a new game in town. Be on the lookout for a new red teaming tool in your environment called Nighthawk to be abused by criminals. Researchers at Proofpoint are beginning to see an increase in usage of Nighthawk as a command and control commonly referred to as C2 post-exploitation framework. Cobalt Strike, another C2 post-exploitation framework, has been the abused weapon of choice by threat actors for years. As detections for Cobalt Strike have increased, threat actors are pivoting to less discoverable tooling. Google literally released 165 YAR rules for detecting Cobalt Strike just recently. Nighthawk has a multitude of evasion techniques and streamlines the cyber kill chain workflow. Be mindful of this and consider adding Nighthawk indicators of compromise to your security tooling sooner than later. Chrome may need to remain vigilant as malware continues to attack Chrome through extensions. Avast has published a report on the Venomsoft malware Chrome extension. This nasty bit of remote access Trojan malware vacuums up anything copied to your clipboard and shares it with threat actors. This is particularly concerning as common data to copy and paste includes long, complex passwords and cryptocurrency wallets. The malware authors have also hard-coded crypto wallet addresses into the malware and it will overwrite 
actual valid crypto wallet addresses if one is detected on the clipboard. And this results in transferring cryptocurrency to the criminal wallets, which to date has netted them $130,000 of ill-gotten gains. The main distribution method for this malware is through presumably cracked software or games downloaded via torrent. Be sure to audit your Chrome extensions from time to time and be wary of torrent downloads. MIT cybersecurity firm MIT Sloan issued a report at the recent World Economic Forum's annual cybersecurity summit sharing six principles that, if CEOs follow, statistically reduces the number of cyber incidents experienced by a business by an amazing 85%. These numbers are quite compelling, and any approach to reduce incidents by 85% should be seriously considered. The six principles were identified as recognize that cybersecurity is a strategic business enabler, understand the economic drivers and impact of cyber risk, align cyber risk management with business needs, ensure organizational design supports cybersecurity, incorporate cybersecurity expertise into board governance, and encourage systemic resilience and collaboration. These principles are not tactical in any way, but in my opinion, they integrate cybersecurity into the business from a strategic perspective, and it gives the business visibility and awareness into the value of cybersecurity and helps them see past the cost center aspect of the business function. Remember to check out simplycyber.io slash streams to get longer form, deeper dive cybersecurity threat briefings every weekday morning. I'm Gerald Lozier from Simply Cyber. Consider yourself armed with knowledge. Before we jump into the interview, I just want to take a moment to plug Cybersecurity Cares. This is a community initiative which kicked off on November 29th and will be running through to December 16th. Cybersecurity Cares is rallying members of the community to make donations to Action Against Hunger, which is saving lives the world over. There are over 20 companies involved so far, and they've managed to raise over six grand on the first day. If you want to learn more, get your company involved, or simply make a donation, visit cybersecurity-cares.com. That is cybersecurity cares.com. Go check it out. And now my interview with Daniel Velasquez, founder and CEO of Ground Truth Connections. Thanks for being here with us today, Daniel. Thanks, Christopher. Before we get into all the things, can you tell us about Ground Truth Connections? What is it you're building and how is it helping people? Sure. Um, Ground Truth Connections is a company that I started um, with a private founder. And it's something that we've been kind of thinking about for a little bit. And, you know, in any given war zone, there is some inherent things that are happening with survey data and people not being able to get access to real-time data that they need. And so we looked at the problem. Sorry, I don't want to interrupt you, but by survey data, do you mean like what's happening on the ground, like maybe a place that's getting shelled or that's not safe to go? Is that? Yeah, exactly. If you can imagine, you know, I'm a Ukrainian person and I wake up in the morning, I might not know where I need to go get fresh water or where there's Mm. food at certain grocery stores or which roads were blocked because of some sort of, uh, you know, wartime activity 
or or anything like that. So that information is changing consistently in a war zone. And yep. you know, you're now dealing with things like Russian missile strikes and cyber hacks on uh, you know power stations and things like that. And so power is going out. So this is a constant problem inside war zones. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also is a problem that exists all over the world. You can look at countries like Venezuela that have poor right. infrastructure. Less stable countries. Absolutely. Or you look at uh, even you know stateside at Texas, and there's a huge snowstorm, and mm-hmm. power goes out for, for a week or two. And people don't know, again, which gas stations have fuel. You know, how, how am I going to go get fuel to run my generator in my home? Um, so that information is super valuable. We'll talk about it in the in the future or here about um, kind of my background and, and I've been in a bunch of different wars. Uh, but this problem always pops up in wars and no one has solved it. And yeah. uh, this is the first thing that we're tackling at Ground Truth Connections. That's fascinating. And I imagine having real-time data in those situations this can it literally mean the difference between life and death. Absolutely. It's, it's things that we take for granted here in the States. I originally started following you on LinkedIn because I was fascinated by your background. Uh, it looks like you've done a whole bunch of things you probably can't talk about, but I'm super interested in what you can. Your resume starts with the Marine Corps. How did that initial decision come come about? What motivated you to join the service? I have a very interesting background, yeah, and I've kind of popped around a lot, and uh, people are surprised by my background. But I joined the Marine Corps uh, Reserve in 2007, and the reality is my dad told me and always told me when I turned 18 that I'm either going to college and I'm going to have to figure out how to pay for it myself. I'm going to start working full-time and paying rent or I'm joining the military. And so that was kind of always instilled in my mind. Uh, But also like I read Tom Clancy books and I always was fascinated with 007 movies and Mission Impossible. And like, I always wanted to be a spy. And so for me, and I was also someone that didn't really enjoy traditional education. I was very, very bored by it. Uh, maybe it's because I got like ADD or something, but uh, Marine Corps just seemed like a perfect way for me to be able to get out into the world. Um, I actually tried to go infantry, but my mom said she would never speak to me again. So they looked at my ASVAP scores and I had scored pretty high. And so they, they put me into military intelligence. And, and so that's why I joined the Marine Corps. You know, I joined the reserves and I later activated for my first time uh, at war in, in Afghanistan in 2009 and 2010. And uh, the truth of the story is I actually had a girlfriend at the time who broke my heart. And I was like, I got to get out of here. You know, I got to <laughs> go off to war and like just show her, you know. And so I literally signed up for the most dangerous deployment I could find, which was with the Marine Recon team. And I went to Afghanistan in 2009 and 2010. Uh, we were the southernmost unit inside of Afghanistan. It was kind of an expeditionary force unit. Um, I also did some laid some groundwork with some other team members for the Battle of Marja, which is this big battle in a uh, southern Helmand province. But yeah, I you know, I could talk about some of my Intel background, which kind of later led to my cyber kind of career if you're interested on, in that space. Yeah, I could see after the Marine Corps you worked as an intelligence officer for both the Defense Intelligence Agency and Joint Special Operations Command. I, I imagine you can't talk about the nature of the work, but uh, what did it feel like doing stuff that had such serious ramifications in the real world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so when I, on my first deployment in the Marine Corps, I kind of got, my, my intelligence career got expedited very, very quickly. So, you know, in my first deployment as a young E2, I got to man my first predator mission. And I remember like my staff sergeant saying, hey, you're in charge, boy. 
And, uh, you know, you can point on the map on the guy that we're going to kill, you know? And so like, I really got thrown into it kind of quickly. Wow, that's heavy. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, I also just always found myself, uh, learning the technology side of things. So I also went to drone training and I flew, you know, anything, any kind of drone that you could, um, throw, um, I had a pilot's license for. And so I would fly drone missions before our recon teams would raid compounds. Uh, so you mean like handheld when you say throw sort of backpacks, you backpack it in, throw it and you get like three or four kilometers range kind of thing. Exactly. But instead of backpack, imagine these giant boxes, um, that were very heavy and they shoved them in on top of me in the back of a tank or something like that. So I'm kind of <laughs> like, you know, instead of a laptop, you've got a giant robot. It was, yeah, stick six Marines in the back of a line armor vehicle with a, with a big drone and is the most uncomfortable situation. And then now you're in a war zone. So you're just like, okay, right. I could get hit by an ID at any moment. Um, but yeah, so I, I really got a great experience there. And so I got an offer of the DIA almost immediately when I got back home. And so I moved to DC in 2010, started working at the DIA. And um, the pace of the DIA was very, very slow. Um, so I, after about a month of being there, I really didn't want to be there. But uh, my team lead at the time was this guy named Chad Hoffman, who I later met in my cyber career years later. Um, but he was a former ranger. And so he got me an interview at Joint Special Operations Command. And Joint Special Operations Command is the unit that houses like SEAL Team 6 and Delta, right. you know, these guys that did the Osama bin Laden raid. But it is the pinnacle of military operations. Um, but I passed the interview there and I went back to Afghanistan for a year in 2011 and 12, where the pace was pretty insane. Wow. Um, and, you know, it's just completely different. I remember being there for two weeks and working these 17 hour, 18 hour shifts and I remember calling my mom and being like almost in tears, like, I can't do this. I got to come home wow. um, because it, the pace was just so insane. But ultimately, I got the hang of it and I started to excel. And that year long experience was amazing. It was amazing for my intelligence career. I did, I was very much involved in interrogations. So I was being an analyst sitting inside an interrogation room with an interrogator, interrogating, you know, Al Qaeda members, Taliban, whatever. And it was my job to collect intelligence and build target packages so that the team guys can go out and hit a compound, you know, the night after. And so like that was just super high pace and super awesome experience. And it, it, I really got to, to understand the fundamentals of signals intelligence and human intelligence. And so, yeah, that led to my career at the CIA. Um, and I could jump into that if you would like. Uh, yeah, sure. I was, I was, this is a, a lot to, Lot to take in. I didn't expect such uh, a wide and varied career. Yeah, I just always been the guy that raises hands for anything. Um, mm -hmm. As long as it wasn't sitting in a room listening to a PowerPoint slide, like I was yeah. down to to put my hands on something and learn. So yeah, when I got home from my deployment with Joint Special Operations Command, I got some calls from some recruiters at the agency, and I guess I'll kind of skip a little bit of that process. But I, I joined the agency at 22 years old. And so I was pretty young, you know, I'm surrounded yep. by, you know, retired Navy SEALs, retired, uh, you know, F-16 pilots and, you know, Harvard grads, Stanford grads, and, you know, this is just me, Dan, you know, barely graduated <laughs> high school. And, you know, I'm in these rooms with these guys doing this very cool, very intense mission. And um, yeah, I mean, that experience was amazing. I was doing counterterrorism work 
um, all over the globe. You know, basically it was my job as a targeter. They actually called me a special skills officer before they had the, the name targeter. And if you've ever seen the movie Zero Dark Thirty, yep. um, there's a there's an actor in there, and she's basically playing the role of a targeter. If you want to know what a targeter is, and yeah. you know, we are assigned targets. That is our target that we own, and it's our um, job to understand that target better than anybody, and go and find those targets any be necessary. And so, again, I did that in uh, some pretty cool places, targeting Al Qaeda in Yemen and Pakistan and Afghanistan, and then. The end of that part of my CIA career focused on targeting ISIS in Iraq and Syria. And uh, again, I was always focused on not just the human mission and how I can use that intelligence to drive operations, but I was also looking at things like cyber data. And, and a lot of people weren't looking at that and they weren't integrating that into their intelligence workflow. And uh, I just found a niche with it. And it's just something, this just goes later in my career about like, you know, figuring out that I was an entrepreneur. I just always right. looked at things differently. Right. And, uh, and sometimes that got me in trouble. Actually, a lot of times that got me in trouble. But, uh, but now being an entrepreneur, it's, it's, a, it's a skill that I've honed over the years that, that actually has been very helpful. So yeah, at, at what point did you decide to leave the service and become an entrepreneur? At some point middle in, the, in my middle 20s, I was tired of getting shot at all the time and stuff. And I wasn't able to hold down relationships and things like that. So because I was traveling all the time. So I was looking at my career and I was looking at cyber and I was reading about it and I was like, I need to get into this. Like there's commercial application. Yeah. I can go out into the world and make good money and, and kind of step back from the government. So I took one last job at the agency um, as a technical mm -hmm. intelligence officer. And it was my job in that role to apply and use commercial technology for an espionage mission. And sometimes in you know, these missions that we were doing, you can't use the super secret technology that's in the basement. And sometimes you have to use some open source capabilities. Sure. Um, but when you use those capabilities, you need to understand how they work. You need to understand how uh, things like network traffic is working. Because, you know, if there's some, some network traffic, you know, going to China, you might want to know about that. So, you know, so I learned some basic skills in terms of like using Wireshark to to do some testing on applications that we were using, um, but also just understanding how man-in-the-middle attacks worked and making sure that that our officers weren't being um, attacked in, the, in those ways. And so I got that that really good cyber experience, and that led to um, a job at FireEye, which turned into to Mandiant. Yeah, I saw. So in uh, 2021, you started working for Mandiant. And then after that, you went and started a company called Outcome Security. So yeah, I mean, Mandiant... FireEye Bandiant was amazing. Um, I just had a great uh, leaders there that helped me evolve and, and move rapidly in the company. And so I started off focusing on the cyber mission, uh, excuse me, the China cyber mission and became kind of an expert in China. And uh, I could talk about China cyber forever. Um, <laughs> I love it. Um, and, and so I did that for a little bit. But again, I saw some gaps in some things that we were doing and how and some things that the government was doing. And so I actually um, built a an idea that I delivered to um, a government agency and they liked the idea and they ended up funding Mandiant a lot of money, millions of dollars over you know, a multi-year contract. And uh, so I got promoted rapidly and I ran that project. It was kind of in the the red teaming space. And so I kind of learned more on the offensive side of the house. And then 
Um, I And then I saw another gap in the company, which was there was always customers coming to Mandiant as experts in cybersecurity and asking for products that they were interested in. And so early on, we were getting questions about things like cyber deception capabilities. And they were like, you're Mandiant, you must have something. And Mandiant you know, didn't have a cyber deception product in their arsenal. So instead of telling these customers no, I just found myself interjecting in those sales conversations and right. talking to those customers, understanding what, what it is that they were looking for, and then designing with some of my team members um, some technology that we could create backed by Mandiant's real-world intelligence and selling that to those customers. And I had success. So they gave me kind of a director title ultimately. And I built this new team focused on building innovative products for the company um, that was supported by you know Kevin Mandiat. I got to chat with Kevin Mandiat about some of my ideas and stuff and, and cool. he loved it. Um, and so I did that and I I you know I realized that you know I had a knack for it. And so I was like, you know what, let's start a company and let's let's kind of reap the benefits of some of these ideas. And I have ideas always flowing through my brain. You know, I, I, you know, I, we've been chatting a little bit and, you know, you talked about being an entrepreneur. So I know, you know, that feeling of just being able, always having these ideas flowing in your brain. So I was like, let's start a company. And I started Outcome Security at the beginning of this year. Um, and I left eight months later. And, you know, that's, that company is still alive and well, and they're doing some awesome things that I'd love to talk about. And the two founders there, Pat and Ryan, are some of the strongest cybersecurity professionals I've ever met. Um, and so that company, I still have you know high expectations for, but ultimately, um, I find myself in a situation where I wanted to do things a different way, and we couldn't always agree on this. And I know you could probably understand that with starting companies. Yeah. And so for me, I just thought it was best that I stay, took a step back and let those guys um, be effective at at what they're 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 able to do. And so I took a kind of an added, an advisory role advisory role initially and just let them those guys you know run run rampant and be very very successful and and uh, i'll talk about what i what i'm up to now but um but man i learned everything i mean i never knew how to start a company originally yeah you know i left mandiant and six weeks six weeks later we had raised almost a million dollars um in venture funds and uh and that process was you know i was drawing wireframes you know on a, on a piece of paper and you know it's I'm not a lot a of calls too right <laughs> oh a lot of calls as well yeah. but but luckily for us you know the the venture world loves to invest and in, i think guys like myself who have a veteran background have an intelligence and government background but have also been successful in the commercial space yeah. understand things like go to market strategies and product market fit and messaging and sales cycles and you know portfolio and governance and ITAR and like all these things that you need to know when you're building a product. Um, and so, you know, again, people have been were really supportive and wanting to in invest in us. So um, but yeah, I learned so much and now I'm taking that that those those learning and that experience and building ground truth connections. And we talked about it originally, but it's not just helping the people in Ukraine. I feel like there's been a gap in helping a lot of people that really need our help. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm someone, a man of faith and, you know, I go to church and I, and I do a lot of volunteer work. And if for those who've ever done volunteer work, you know, and they've used some of these applications or some of these, these web pages to go and do that work, they are terrible. They lack some basic, you know, software development fundamentals and design, and it could be way more effective. 
And I just come from a very optimistic mindset of there are people out there that really want to help other people. And if we can connect the people that want to do that with the people that really need the help, um, I think that's a business that, that can be built there. And yeah. so that's where my head is at. That's what I'm thinking about day in and day out and things that I'm designing outside of the support to Ukraine. And, um, and that's what I want to build a company around. Um, I'm also staying very active. So outside of that, I'm also working in a company called Aspis Cybersecurity. Okay. And I got introduced some, to some private investors who ended up acquiring an Israeli cybersecurity called ASIC Networks. And I met the CEO, uh, Shimon Zigdan, who is Israeli. And you know he's got a 30-year career in cybersecurity. And um, I was just in Israel last month. And the team that he has and the technology that he's built um, is an amazing piece of technology. And I just got really excited about it. So I wanted to be a part of that. So I'm helping that company grow and, and flourish. And uh, basically what they're doing or what they have built is like a, a signal or wicker on steroids. And so it's not only providing end-to-end -end encryption for, for voice and video and things and messages and things like that, but it's also detecting if there are malicious applications on your device doing something that they shouldn't be doing. It's like an um, endpoint agent as well as uh, encryption. Exactly. Yeah. So it's it's basically an endpoint on the mobile device, um, but they also have some patents that allow them to detect man in the middle attacks and break those connections if that if that occurs, um, and potentially even detect where the attacker is coming from. Um, and they also have a patent in a technology that they call the third eye, which allows users to set something on your device, and you can put your phone down. You can walk away from your device, and if someone picks up your phone. They'll be prompted with the password. If they can't input that password, the phone will start taking pictures of whoever's got your phone. Hmm. And and kind of the government and military space, and those who come from that background, you know, you've gone to meetings where you've had to put your your phone in a cubby. All uh, right, yeah, interesting. And go into a meeting, but overseas, you know, these foreign um, diplomats, the U.S. foreign diplomats, um, their phones are getting hacked consistently by uh, human operators who are you, grabbing you their device. Yeah, exactly. They're grabbing. I mean, it's, it could be just grabbing their phone and doing simple cell bright. You know, connect to a cell bright and ripping out your your messages from your device and things like that. Right. So, um, this blocks that um, and detects that. But we also think there's a consumer product there, and I think the cybersecurity industry has failed at this over many many years. Which is how do I bring a security product to a consumer market? And the re the way that I feel like they failed is they say things like bits and bytes and DLL and, you know, .exe. And like, my mom doesn't know what any of that stuff means. And so yeah. we need to build a product, a security product that my mom can use. And so that's what we're, we've got our heads doing there at Aspis Cybersecurity. And that's what we're building is something that at the consumer market, it'll, they, they will feel protected, but they're not going to get overwhelmed by Things like, hey, I'm an AV scanning your your mobile device, and here are the alerts to these EXEs that are malicious on your device. Like we were yeah. removing all of that from the consumer. That sounds like a hard problem to solve. I wish you luck. Yeah, the technology's built. They just kind of need to change the messaging and things like that. And so um, that's what we're doing. We just designed a, a new UI, so it's 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 a really good user experience. Off of that, um, do you have any thoughts on the current cybersecurity vendor market outside of that? We're not marketing properly to end users and getting buy-in there when you as an entrepreneur see all the 
LinkedIn posts and tweets and like how companies are trying to push their products out into the market. Do you have any thoughts on on that? I do. I think the marketing and cybersecurity is really, really bad. I think sales and marketing is really, really bad in cyber. Um, these big companies hire these very, very expensive sales forces that, you know, based off of people they know, they sell their these security products into the in the market. Um, I actually talked to Lima Charlie's um, marketing officer um, about some of this stuff, and you know, he talked about the strategy that you guys are implementing, which is product-led growth, yeah. and that's something that I've been studying um, a, a lot about. And I think product-led growth is is the absolute strategy that cybersecurity professionals need to be taking to market. Um, and that is like, hey, I'm a cybersecurity professional, let me try your product first before I yeah. talk to a salesperson. And, and let me prove why you should be my customer and I'll prove that every single day. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And if we're not spending resources and money engineering a product that can do that, then I think we are failing as a cybersecurity uh, a company. And so, yeah, I, I definitely think there's some things that could be changed in the cybersecurity market. And I think things will change now that you know, investment into cyber over the last four years or so has been a lot, a lot of money. And now yep. that the market is down, uh, we're not going to companies are not going to be able to spend that much money building these giant sales forces and and doing all these types of kind of weird marketing um, gimmicks. Like you're going to mm-hmm. have to engineer a really good product, yeah. um, and then that's going to have to stand on its own. Yeah, the companies that aren't providing value will start to have attrition, and and the ones that prove real value will rise. Um, yeah. This is the last one I got for you. Sure. <laughs> I ask this one to everyone. So as wide or narrow as you want, I'm really interested in your answer. Uh, do you have any predictions for the future? Predictions of the future. I mean, as it relates to China, or excuse me, cyber, I could talk about China all day long. Um, I think, you know, China is going to probably invade Taiwan sometime in the next five years. Um, I'll put money on it. And I think if... You don't think from a cyber perspective they're already laying the groundwork today, mm-hmm. um, then you're absolutely mistaken. You know, I think we have squirrel syndrome in the government and in, in the cyber community. And so everyone started talking about Russia and cyber when Ukraine kicked off. Mm-hmm. Um, but Russia was prepared and was doing stuff well before their invasion. And China's doing the same stuff now and we're not we're not talking about it. We're not looking into it. Right. And uh the world needs to prepare for for something there, and I think also, you know, again, thinking about the future, you know, over the last few years, I think Cyber Pearl Harbor already happened um, in Solar Winds and Hafnium, and you know, the, the world just doesn't understand cyber. I think it's just going to have to happen over and over and over again. You know, I've I've come from the government, I've talked to these people in the government at the Pentagon and other government buildings about you know cyber policy. And they're really lagging, and they don't know how to handle it, and uh, it's causing uh, negative repercussions to you know government agencies like CISA who want to who have a mission to protect us. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I think so. You talk about the future. I think there will be more attacks like Solar Winds. If not, they're already happening, and we just haven't uncovered them. Well, on that note, uh, thanks very much for joining us today, Daniel. This was a great conversation. Thank you for inviting me, and uh, everybody, check out Lima Charlie. And that's a wrap for this, the eighth episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. We're super grateful and appreciate you listening in and engaging with us. 
you found value from this podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and leave a quick review or rating. It would mean so much to the team who put this podcast together. And make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you're listening from. And again, thank you very much, and we'll see you on the next episode.